This is the Room Now Podcast. It's September 1st, 2023. I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow.com. September is RA month. This month, you'll see a lot of content all about rheumatoid arthritis, where our theme is hard decisions in RA. More on that later. I think maybe a few really important things we'll start with that happened this week. One is the ACR snuck in a position paper. Uh, a white paper, position paper, about the value of a rheumatologist. I think this is gigantic. I don't know about you, but I've often had to justify the value of a rheumatologist, you know, in, in salary and justifying, you know, we generate a lot of, of other care. We support a lot of other services. You know, our patients go to surgery. They go to infusion centers. You know, we use a lot of resources within the system because we manage complex patients. But those line items go to someone else's credit. And the rheumatologist is always left struggling for, well, really, we can't afford you. Um, The ACR has a really nice uh, two-part series on this. Uh, I found out about it actually on Medscape, looked it up. I think you'll be encouraged to look at it. It basically shows that if you compare, um, uh, they looked at the literature and they looked at the how much savings was incurred by involving rheumatologists, both in preventative services, um, uh, the cost of, of, of surgeries and hospitalizations and emergency, emergency department visits. They compared uh, outcomes in uh, jurisdictions or markets where there's uh, too few rheumatologists and then where there's a um, uh, an abundance of rheumatologists and clearly having rheumatologists lowers the cost of care and the quality of care is substantially improved. This is a major paper in rheumatology. Another big uh, happening this week, the FDA approved canakinumab, the IL-1 inhibitor, for the treatment of gout flares. As you may know, nearly a dozen years ago, um, canakinumab went in front of the FDA and went in front of the FDA advisory committee uh, who voted down the approval of this drug, basically not having enough data. And what's happened in the last 10 years is that Novartis went ahead, did more trials, and the FDA has now approved canakinumab with the indication being uh, for the treatment of gout flares in adults in whom non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and colchicine are contraindicated or are not tolerated or do not provide an adequate response and in those patients whom repeated courses of steroids are not appropriate. This is sort of a major thing. Um, How this will actually get used in practice will be defined by you. Uh, This is very early. Uh, Don't go to the package insert, ilaris.com, to see the the wording on this or more data on this. It's being negotiated right now, but I think that you'll be seeing more about this in the months to come. An interesting report from MedPage today um, actually looked at a journal article that showed that gout um, patients um, did very well when they were on the diabetes drugs, the SGLT2 inhibitors. This is a study of almost 6,000 UK patients who were on these drugs and compared outcomes, gout patient outcomes to those who are on other um, gout drugs like GLP-1 receptor antagonists or DPP-4 inhibitors, and basically showed that there was um, better gout outcomes, better mortality rates, um, pretty impressive data. 
again, uh, should this be adjunctive care in patients, uh, gout patients? And of course, they're getting urate-lowering therapy in addition to this. So, uh, and why are they on these therapies? Well, gout patients have, um, you know, comorbidities, including diabetes. But again, these SGLT2 inhibitors are faring well in lupus outcomes, in heart failure outcomes, um, now also in gout outcomes. Uh, speaking of lupus, a study from New Zealand, a population-based study showed that in their population, I think they had um, 2,800 plus lupus patients over a 17-year period, 25% had died with a third of those being due to lupus, uh, being lupus attributable deaths. The standardized mortality rate was about 0.3 per 100,000 women, which was about six times higher than men. Um, so women are more affected and hence the higher standardized mortality rate. People who are more likely to die from lupus included those who had lupus at a younger age, meaning maybe you have to, uh, maybe lupus has a greater chance of, of having an effect. We certainly know that pediatric SLE is nasty. It's nastier than a, a lot of, you compare age groups, you know, uh, pediatric SLE to young adult to mid, mid adult to older, pediatric SLE patients have far worse disease. Um, and I think there's good evidence to support that. Um, again, if you had lupus at a younger age, you're two times more likely to die uh, from, from lupus. Also, it was um, higher in the Maori population, which is prevalent in, in New Zealand. Uh, a post hoc analysis of two phase three trials with abatacept in patients with polyarticular JIA showed that it didn't matter whether you got the abatacept IV or sub-Q. It didn't matter whether you got the abatacept with or without methotrexate. The outcomes and efficacy were the same, ef efficacy being measured by the, the um, JIA ACR 38 response, I think it is, and the, and the, uh, the JA-27 CRP measure. Uh, it turns out that it didn't matter whether you were bio-naive or bio-experienced. Uh, the safety, efficacy, and PK parameters were the same with or without methotrexate, and that should be encouraging. Uh, a comparative analysis of systemic sclerosis patients. I don't see many with juvenile onset, but in this study, they compared 158 systemic sclerosis adults to 58 juvenile onset. Um, and they showed differences beyond just age. Um, one for, uh, was at the time the diagnosis was... Um, comparing adults to kids. It was longer in adults to ki than kids, five versus two years. The incidence of ILD was more in adults, 51% than in kids, 30%. Hypertension more in adults, 18 versus 0%. Um, more limited skin disease, uh, so the limited form of scleroderma was seen in the adult population, 74%. It was like less than half in the uh, kid population. But as you would expect, maybe more diffuse um, systemic sclerosis was seen um, in, in the kids with the juvenile onset of systemic sclerosis. Adults had an overall higher mortality, um, and that's, I think, encouraging. Another study with systemic sclerosis uh, looked at the effects of tofacitinib in systemic sclerosis patients who had interstitial lung disease, as proven by high-res CT. 
Now, this is an uncontrolled report. They had to have greater than six months of disease. They found a total of 35 patients. They basically showed really good responses with regard to the, um, the skin, um, with regard to DLCO, uh, and the high-res CT fibrosis scores when they compared that to a control population. So they sort of had a... Um, Oh, actually, this was a this was a comparative study. Nine patients treated with tofacitinib versus thirty-five patients who were matched controls who were not treated with tofacitinib. And tofacitinib group did well. Now you wonder why the tof this is not a randomized controlled trial. This is a retrospective sort of uh, analysis of patients on one drug and not another. So there's a there's a selection bias inherent in this. But you know we have had reports in the past of JAK inhibitors looking encouraged. Showing some encouragement uh, as far as both skin and also scleroderma outcomes as, re as relates to especially lung. Uh, I think that we need to see a really well-designed large trial uh, in systemic sclerosis. Another retrospective analysis of patients with refractory myositis um, looked at patients treated with tofacitinib. I guess I was thinking of this one. This was not a controlled study. Uh, and the, the myositis patients include 23 with dermatomyositis, 12 with um, uh, CADM, um, um, basically um, uh, um, dermatomyositis without, uh, uh, mainly skin um, uh, forms of dermatomyositis, and six polymyositis patients. Basically, they showed really good skin responses with a JAK inhibitor, but really nothing with regard to muscle improvement. More than half the patients discontinued the JAK inhibitor for a lack of efficacy. Uh, pneumocystis, where does it occur? We've said before that one of the high risk groups, not just steroids, but would be GPA patients, right? And then this study that we quoted this week was looked at uh, vasculitis patients in an ICU, um, and it turned out that um, risk factors for having pneumocystis pneumonia, PJP, uh, amongst ICU patients was uh, um, having AIDS, having non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, having vasculitis with a six-fold higher risk, also metastatic tumors in the, those who had in, um, background lung disease with CT appearance of a ground glass defect. Lymphopenia, again, a risk factor always shows up um, with the risk of pneumocystis. But from this study, which is really about ICU patients, they found that having vasculitis gave you a six-fold higher risk of developing PJP. It goes along with the data we've presented in the past. Uh, I don't know if you saw the report from the beginning of the week um, that uh, hip replacement uh, is possible after age 60. This was a fairly large cohort analysis. Um, on one hand, it says, you know what? You can do the surgery after age 90. And in fact, um, survival rates and whatnot was higher in 90-year-olds who had hip replacement surgery than in 90-year-olds who didn't have hip replacement surgery. Probably a selection bias in that. Don't you think that if someone's going to go ahead and have um, hip replacement surgery, they probably don't have a whole lot of comorbidities? Uh, as opposed to many people who aren't having it, where maybe they're afraid to use it because of comorbidities. Nonetheless, they did show that the big drivers here for bad outcomes over age 90 was the presence of comorbidities uh, and the development of complications. So um, where's a nice number here? 
the um, major complications occurred in almost 20% of people in their 90s following hip replacement, compared to 11% if they're in their 80s and 6% in their 70s and 3.7% in their 60s. So age gives it ups the rate of complications, does it not? And complications ups the rate of mortality uh, in these people. So um, overall though, the one year survival rate for these over 90 people who did not have complications was 94%. If they did have complications, it now dropped to 80%. Again, this is sort of good news, bad news about hip replacement surgery over age 90. When I talk to my patients about whether they should have major joint replacement surgery, I always point it out that Bob Hope had hip replacement surgery at age 91. And he wasn't the Bob Hope. And for those of you who don't know Bob Hope is, he's a famous comedian from the 50s, um, maybe back in the 40s, I think, uh, uh, who had a film career and a comedy career. And he was retired after age 80, 85, living in Palm Springs. And he had a hip replacement at age 90 and did well. He lived until age 100 um, and was mobile as a result of having his surgery. So congratulations, Bob Hope. Um, rest in peace, Bob Hope. The other interesting uh, report that we put out at the beginning of the week was that the gut microbiome is abnormal in JIA. That's been reported. But in this report, they showed that the gut microbiome abnormalities antedates the actual development of JIA. So this is a Swedish study, 17,000 patients. They were doing stool samples. They did a single stool sample at age, at one year, I think. And, um, and you know, they did the was it 16s um, analysis for all the species that are involved and they basically showed that those who later went on to develop JIA had a higher abundance of Prevotella and a whole bunch of other ones um, that having uh, Parabacteroides uh, dystinonis um, gave you a six or sevenfold higher risk of later uh, developing JIA, shorter breastfeeding uh, duration and increased antibiotics exposure also um, increase the risk of developing JIA. We've talked about antibiotics possibly being a risk. So it's not surprising that um, microbiome is involved with disease, disease pathogenesis. The fact that it may be involved years before the development of the disease is quite interesting. And does this mean that we can that we should be looking at the microbiome early on to find out who's at risk? It's really hard to know, but I think this is compelling uh, research that uh, I'm sure people will talk about in the future. Again, I want to remind you of our campaign on rheumatoid arthritis in the month of September. Um, uh, uh, I think you'll see some amazing uh, content, both blogs and videos and podcasts and webinars. Um, we have over 40 of the biggest contributors in the RA world. They'll be doing blogs and videos on steroids, methotrexate, serologies, lung disease, lung complications, lung guidelines from the ACR, pregnancy, infection, depression, prevention of RA. And I'm going to get a nice big piece together about how all the leaders in rheumatology and rheumatoid arthritis respond to the question, how do you treat refractory disease? Look for that in the weeks to come. Next Tuesday, we're having a Tuesday night rheumatology one hour webinar. You're gonna get an invite for that. Make sure you sign up for it. We have a fabulous program. 
Janet Pope is moderating. The discussion is about the consequences uh, and outcomes of the oral surveillance study that led to um, the jack inhibitors being slapped with a black box warning and some concerns by many about how you use these drugs. We've got an expert panel that include Dr. Roy Fleischman, uh, Dr. Jeff Curtis, and Dr. John Giles, and Janet Pope will be trying to keep those people in order. Good luck, Janet. Watch for what we do in the month of September. Take care.